scripture reading tonight will be from Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 43. And two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Well, I'm glad that you're here tonight. It's good for the family of God to be together, to worship, and to open God's Word. So if you have your Bible or your device, go to Luke chapter 7. And I'll tell you that this uh, series, I've enjoyed hearing from the other ministers. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. Um, This is not my life's verse, uh, but it has been my verse for about the last 30 years or so. And A lot of the thoughts that I have come from a lesson that I heard when I was in college from my campus minister. It had a big impact on my life, and so I give credit to him for some of these ideas. But it has shaped my thought life, and uh, I've contemplated these verses for a long, long time. I'm fortunate to have at least two people in my life that watch out for uh, my physical health. Uh, I have a great doctor who goes to church with us here. I don't know if he's here tonight. Uh, And my loving wife who makes me go to the doctor. Um, And it wasn't too long ago that I went and had not my annual physical that I have every five years or so, but like the big, the big one, like the full checkup. And so uh, I went and I saw the doctor and they did, you know, the full blood work and the panels and the screenings and the diagnostics and it just felt invasive. Uh, I hate needles. Uh, it, it, was just, it was just a lot. Um, and I knew that, that, it, that some of these tests might reveal some things about my health, and then I would have to confess some things about my unhealthy lifestyle. Um, I don't think it would come as a surprise to very many of you that I live a fairly sedentary life. Uh, I walk from my house to my car, I walk from my car to the office. Uh, I carry my golf clubs to my golf cart, and then I get in the golf cart. Uh, I walk from the couch to the fridge. Um, It would not surprise very many of you that my Dr. Pepper to water ratio is way out of whack. Um, My Chick-fil-A to vegetable scale is, is completely out of balance. I don't like going to the doctor, and I'm sorry if if you're here tonight, but it's because of the tests and the questions. By the nature of the tests and the questions, he is going to see a very clear picture of what's going on inside of me. And he asks questions that are unsettling. And they're unsettling because if I answer them honestly, I won't like the answers. I'll have to admit to some things. And honestly, maybe one of the reasons I don't like it is, is because of fear. I'm afraid of what the tests might reveal, that I'll get some bad news, or that I'll have to face something that I'm afraid of. And so I'll avoid the questions because I don't want to know the answers. But when all the results come back, I'll sit down with the doctor, and he will compare me to healthy people. He will say, compared to healthy people, your cholesterol is off the charts which he said to me. And he said, compared to healthy people, your, your blood pressure is elevated. And then we'll talk about how I need to eat healthier meals, and I need to eat fewer of them, and I need to exercise more. And I will tell him, I didn't need to come see you for you to tell me that. I knew that already. 
and most of you probably do too. But there are lots of revealing questions that I don't want to ask. Questions like, am I making the most of my time? Am I involved in any activities without purpose? Am I investing enough of my time in the relationships that God's given me? What are the weights in my life? What are the things that are holding me back and dragging me down? What's the biggest problem that I'm facing in my life right now? And have I contributed to that problem? Am I working on that problem? Who's the most difficult person in my life today? And what have I done to reconcile that relationship? Have I forgiven them? Those are good, hard questions. Let me give you one more question tonight. Does Jesus matter? Does Jesus really matter? Does Christian faith make a difference? And of course the answer is yes, but if I answer too quickly, it's because I don't really want to think deeply about the answers. I'm afraid of what a self-exam might reveal about my own heart. But there are important questions to ask. Has Jesus made a difference in my life? Has Jesus made a real, tangible difference in your life? Are you different because of him? Has my faith changed who I am? Has your faith changed who you are? I don't know about you, but those, for me, are hard questions to answer because I know me. I know the truth about how flawed I am. I know the distance between what I should be and what I am. Charles Spurgeon said, I'm the worst sinner I know. And how I answer the question, does Jesus really matter, significantly affects how I see other people. I've really enjoyed the series and hearing from the other ministers because many of them have talked about their life's verse and their ministry verse and they are the same. And I think that's really cool. A lot of them have been ministers and that's been their one career. Mine was not. I've, you know, many of you know I've had two careers at least. And so my ministry verse is a little bit different than my life verse. My ministry verse is actually from Mark 2 and I didn't see how they were correlated and how parallel they were until I began studying for this sermon. And they're parallel in ways I hadn't seen before. So read with me from Mark chapter 2. It's on the screen. Mark chapter 2, 15 through 17. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so these verses are a good reminder for me to keep first things first, to make the main thing the main thing, to keep mission and why we do ministry in front of us. But these verses are all the, also the backdrop. It's the, it's the place where Jesus operated the irreligious were the people that loved Jesus, and the super-religious couldn't stand him. And now read with me Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, my life's verse. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. 
A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. The background of this story is familiar to a lot of us, I'm sure. There are three figures in this story. There's Simon the Pharisee. And these days he gets a bad rap because nobody compliments you or anyone else by saying what a good Pharisee you are. But here's Simon, and in his day, he would have been respectable. He would have been influential socially, influential politically, influential religiously. He's probably wealthy because he can afford to throw a big dinner party. That was rare in those days. And in that time when someone like Simon would throw a dinner party, it was very common for it to become a community event. There were the invited guests that would sit around the table, but others would come and stand in the courtyard and listen to the discussion and watch what was happening. And so if you think Edmund on a Friday night at 10 o'clock is boring, this was their entertainment. And Jesus is early in his ministry, but he's already very well known. He's been performing miracles. He's been teaching the people with authority. In just a few verses before these, Jesus raises a man from the dead. The disciples have left Capernaum. They're entering a city called Nain, and they come to the gates, and as they get there, a funeral procession is coming out. And there's a widow whose only son has died, and Jesus has compassion on her. And he walks over, and he just touches the wooden frame where the body is laying, and he raises the man from the dead. And what's interesting is that every time Jesus performs a miracle, there are two reactions to it. Jesus is very polarizing. He's popular, but he's popular with the non-religious, with the tax collectors, with the prostitutes and sinners. That group is really excited about him. The Pharisees are not. If you look just a few verses before in verse 29, you can see it pretty clearly in chapter seven. All the people, even the tax collectors, agreed that God's way was right, for they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them, for they had refused John's baptism. 
The sinners are excited and the Pharisees are nervous, whatever else you want to attach to them, scared, skeptical. They weren't buying it. Simon is not a committed follower of Jesus. We're not sure why he invited Jesus. He doesn't treat him like an honored guest. He doesn't wash Jesus' feet, which was customary. He doesn't give Jesus oil for his head, which was also customary. He doesn't kiss Jesus when he comes and greets him, which was customary. And so maybe Simon is curious about this man, Jesus. Maybe he wants to know more, but maybe he's skeptical. Maybe he's hoping to expose Jesus as a fraud. Maybe he sees Jesus as this provocative outlier and having him come to his house is gonna elevate Simon's social status. For whatever reason, he invites Jesus to his house and Jesus comes. And then there's the woman, the sinful woman. She's always labeled that way. We don't know what she's done to earn her reputation, but we know that she has one and everyone else knows that she's a sinner. Some people have speculated that that phrase, a city sinner, implies or suggests that she's a woman of the night, that she's a prostitute, and maybe she was. We don't know. We don't know her name. We don't know if she's had any previous encounters with Jesus, but this doesn't seem like the first time they've met. We don't know what Jesus has said or done, but he's had a significant impact on this woman's life. And one more thing, she is definitely not invited to Simon's house for this dinner party. Pharisee men were very careful about their interactions with women, especially sinful women. They wouldn't look at them, they wouldn't touch them, they wouldn't talk to them, and they certainly wouldn't socialize with them. She might as well have a contagious disease that he doesn't want to catch. And so she's just part of the crowd, watching from the outside. And it's hard to know how much of what unfolds she had planned, but she'd planned something because she comes with an alabaster jar of perfume. And what does unfold is emotional and uncomfortable and very personal. And she starts to cry and then weep and then sob. And she's crying so much that her tears are splashing down on Jesus' dirty feet and they begin to get wet. And the Bible says that she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, which means she had to undo her head covering, which was a cultural no-no. You don't do that, and yet she does it anyway. And I'm sure it's not very long before all the conversations stop and everyone is looking at the woman. Have you ever thought about how much it would take, how much you would have to cry to wet someone's feet with your tears? This is a picture of a tear bottle. They found thousands and thousands of these in that region, around, in and around Jerusalem and the Roman Empire. Women used to carry them around their necks and they were secured with a, with a leather cord and when they would cry, they would collect their tears. It was something precious to them. Scholars have looked back at Psalm 56, 8 that David wrote and they've wondered, was it cultural and David's writing about it or did it become cultural because David is writing about it? And here's what he said of God. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. And it's hard to know what actually happened. Maybe this woman brought her stored up life 
all of the joy, all of the pain, all of the sorrows, all of the regret, and she pours them out at Jesus' feet. And whether they're tears from a bottle or they're tears that are falling from her cheeks, it's a picture of a life being surrendered to Jesus. And this woman doesn't care about social implications. There's nothing that is going to keep her from going to Jesus. We could have a whole nother lesson about what we do and the things we use to keep us and others from coming to Jesus, but she is not going to let social conventions or what other people think keep her from her Savior. There's something about Jesus that affected her so deeply that she's completely overwhelmed. But there's something going on inside of Simon, too. He's annoyed, he's irritated. And it's understandable because he's throwing this dinner party and what he thought was gonna be a nice evening of great conversation, insightful questions, stimulating conversation. Now all that anybody's gonna be talking about tomorrow is what this woman did. She's hijacked Simon's party. And it touches something very deep and profound and dark inside Simon's heart. You see, this woman represents something. This woman represents something disturbing and dangerous in Simon's world. Because Simon's world only makes sense because it's clearly defined. Simon's world is defined by us and by them. We are good and they are bad. We have it figured out and God is for us. They don't and God is against them. We are fixed and they are broken. And the world is a safe place as long as there's them and I can count myself among the us. I'm okay because I'm good. She's a sinner and I'm not. And if she's a sinner, then I'm definitely not. But if she can cross over, if she can go from them to us, then Simon's categories and world don't make sense anymore. And if she can cross over from them to us, Simon has to wonder, is Jesus really one of, one of us? This awkward personal moment is unfolding at a public dinner party and everyone is watching her, except Jesus. Jesus is watching him. Why? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. She doesn't need help. Simon does. So Jesus tells Simon a story. Two men owed money, neither of them could pay, and they both were forgiven. There's two debtors, there's two people who couldn't pay, and two people that were forgiven. Which one is them? And which one is us? And for Simon, the question was, which one is you and which one is her? Do you see what Jesus did? He blew up Simon's categories of us and them because they both owed, they both couldn't pay, and they both needed forgiveness. Which one is us? You see, I think Simon's relationship with God had become merely transactional. And when you have that view of God, it's easy to become entitled and assert that because I act a certain way, God owes me something. That God is somehow obliged to do something for me. 
and how wrong we are when we think that way. And the woman knows that she has no claim on God, that she really has nothing to offer and that she can make no demands. And the great physician pulls out Simon's chart and it is not good. And he doesn't compare Simon to the other Pharisees. Jesus compares Simon to the woman. And Simon comes up short. And Jesus isn't angry. Jesus isn't accusatory. Jesus isn't offended. He's just trying to help Simon. And at the end of the day, Simon is probably confused and frustrated and exposed. And the woman has peace. She gets it. She's free. She's forgiven. And Jesus gives her the last word. Peace. And the point is not difficult to the religious, to me, to many of you who have known Jesus for a long time, the message is this, count me with the sinners. I am a them. I'm with the broken. And it's easy to forget how much has happened in our lives, how much has changed, how much God has done for each of us. But don't get me wrong, I have moments of clarity. There are times when I know this deep freedom. I experience joy, I live a life of pure gratitude for what God has done. And like the woman, I just get it. And those things flow out of my life. But sometimes I forget. Sometimes I see other people and their particular sin, a sin that's not my sin. And my natural response is to take offense, to be scandalized by their choices and their behavior. And more often than I'd like to admit, I find myself with Simon, living with trumped-up golds and guilt instead of living in grace and gratitude. And Jesus comes to me, and he doesn't say that I'm not good enough. Instead, he says, you need help, and you always will. And the problem is, is that when I'm in that place, and you can call it complacency or apathy or entitlement, when I'm in that place, it affects my worship. I begin to go through the motions. I can sense my heart closing off to God. And do you know who's a threat when you're in a place like that? The woman is a threat. Sinners are a threat. Emotional, worshipful, grateful sinners are threatening to us. Because they expose our arrogance and numbness. They reveal that we need to change. One of the reasons we need to keep telling the story of Jesus and his power to change lives is we need new believers to be reminded what happened to us. I love this morning that Jeremy read from Romans 6 and he said, we read this not just in celebration of a baptism, but to remind ourselves of so much of what God has done for us. We need to keep getting healed. A church that isn't helping people find Jesus is gonna be filled with people who have forgotten what Jesus has done for them. A church like that becomes a place full of worship critics instead of worshipers. And people like that aren't filled with God's grace and gratitude and peace. And I am convinced that that's what God wants for us.
But the story also reminds me how Jesus affects the way I see the world. Do I see everyone as us and them? Or have I thrown out those categories? Do I see people and my neighbors as bad or just as in need of Jesus like I am? Do I look at my coworkers with disgust and contempt because of the choices they make? Or do I look at them with compassion? Do I see other students as being as worthy of God's love as I am? You know, it's interesting to see how people were just drawn to Jesus. And when you think about it, it's the people who you would imagine would not be drawn to him, but they are. And we have to ask, well, why is that? And I think it's because they liked Jesus. And they liked him because he liked them. He didn't use their past. He didn't use their failures or their weakness to categorize them or define them. He liked being with them and he loved them. And that's not to say that Jesus was naive. Jesus knew who the woman was. He knew what she was about, but he didn't let that define her. I have a friend, Doug Lolly, who's a minister in Louisville, Kentucky, and he told how just this week he was at the church building where he works, and a man tracked him down and wanted to talk in private. And Doug says that he could just tell that it was going to be one of those conversations. And he immediately began thinking about how much money he had in his wallet and how much of this man's story he would have to listen to before he could move on. Now, admittedly, Doug says that during the last 30 years of ministry, he's seen a lot and he's heard a lot. And he's given a lot because despite people's exaggeration and sometimes falsehoods, there are many people who are desperate and needing help. And Doug says that he trusts that somehow God will bless the gesture he makes for them. He said, this was not that. The man asked him, does this church have a food pantry? Doug half listened as he internally judged between sincerity and con artist. The man explained how the church had helped him out eight or nine years ago when he was in a tough spot and Doug thought, and yet here we are again. The man went on telling him about how difficult life had been at the time, but what the church had done for him and gotten him through. And then the man pulled out his wallet and he handed Doug all the money inside of it, $21. And he said this, please help someone else like I was then, if you can. Doug says his demeanor changed, his own heart was softened, and he was healed of his cynicism, even if just for a little while. Jesus invites me, and Jesus invites you to look at others with his eyes as two debtors with one forgiver. And if you're here tonight and want to know the peace and freedom that come from knowing Jesus, we'd love to join you on that journey. If you're ready to be clothed with Christ in baptism, we're here to help with that too. And if you've known Jesus for a long time, but you feel far away from him, we'd love to pray with you and for you. Come as we stand and sing. On bended knee I come with a humble